church, our Lord said, Why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door of God. Buenos dias, que tal? Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean, and it's great to be back with you this week. That was Robert Galea from his song, Make Me Holy. You can find more information about Robert off of my website at www.catholichack.com. Well, this week I thought we'd take a bit of a break from our study of A Father Who Keeps His Promises, as we just came off a great, you know, really rich and thick topic of Genesis chapter 3. And I actually was planning on giving a little bit more information and look into those typological links from Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to our Lord in the Gospels. But uh, this week, I want to do something special. Uh, During the week, a a listener actually wrote to me, contacted me through Facebook, uh, and asked me some questions. He was being challenged by a Protestant friend of his who, with some very tough questions about what the church teaches in regards to St. Peter and how we hold him up as being the first pope and the one who bears the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And so uh, we're going to get into a few questions that this he asked me, and he needed some straightforward answers to to be able to respond to his friend. And so I gave him some resources, and I gave him some pointers, and, and I, I thought I would share that for the benefit of everybody on tonight's show. So we're going to be doing that today. Just a couple of questions about St. Peter and what the church teaches in regards to that. Also, on the website at catholichack.com, I have a poll going right now. I want to know from you whether or not you believe in what the Church teaches in regards to the sacrament of the Eucharist. Do you believe that Jesus is truly present, as the Church teaches, not symbolically, but actually present, body, blood, soul, and divinity there in the accidents of the bread and wine? And so I want to know that. And so I invite you to my website, www.catholichack.com. That's all one word. There on the right-hand side at the top is the poll. And it's either Amen, I Believe, or it's uh, I Don't Really Know, But I Trust What the Church Teaches Me, or it's No, I Don't Believe at All. 
So do me a favor, just take a couple of minutes today, stop by the website and cast your vote. I really would like to know uh, what you think in regards to that matter. Here in a couple of weeks, I plan on doing a show where I will talk about uh, the doctrine of the real presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. And so I want to be able to reference this poll and the listeners who have actually taken time to vote. We've had over 40 votes so far, and they're not all the same, by the way. So cast your vote today. Well, before we begin today's show, let's say a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. All glorious and powerful and almighty God, we come before you today seeking your holy grace. We pray that you will send forth your Holy Spirit to come upon us, to enlighten us, to guide us in our discussion. Teach us, dear Father, what you want us to know about St. Peter. What does the church teach? What is true? Help us and guide us through this process. Reveal to us the, the, the scriptures that we must dive and consider in this discussion. We pray especially for those people tonight who are away from the church. I pray for them, that you will send forth the Holy Spirit to enlighten them, to call them, to beg them home, to place upon their heart an ache and a desire to come home to your church. I ask and seek your mercy to do your will and for your glory alone tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray also for those suffering most, especially those with cancer, I pray especially for my father-in-law. I pray that you will be with him. And I seek the intercession of our dear lady. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, well, I'm, there's a couple of questions here that I want to tackle. Again, all very specific to St. Peter. Here's the first question. If St. Peter was given the keys of the kingdom, then why is he still clueless as to what Jesus was teaching about his kingdom? Why squabble over an earthly kingdom when Jesus was speaking of a heavenly one? Clearly, St. Peter was nothing special at all. He, he's not even first among the apostles, right? Now, what's going on here? What's going on here is we see in Matthew 16 of how he was given the keys to the kingdom by our Lord Jesus Christ. However, we see further on in the gospel him squabbling over who gets to sit at the right and the left and, and who gets to be the first in the kingdom. And, uh, and they, clearly they just didn't understand what was going on or what Jesus was teaching. What he was speaking heavenly. They're thinking earthly. So to some, they view that as he's not even qualified. St. Peter is not even qualified. Clearly, this guy is, you know, some sort of clumsy fool. How can he be the Pope? How can he be the vicar of Christ? How could he have the keys to the kingdom? That's not what Jesus meant in Matthew 16. Well, it is, and I'll get into that now. Clearly, we must understand that even though St. Peter in particular, but how about any of us, you and me? We're not perfect yet. You know, perfection happens through the, pur the purgation process as we enter into the beatific vision. We are thus purged in purgatory and made ready to be combined, to be joined for all eternity in the beatific vision with that which is all perfect, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we attain perfection when we reach heaven. This side of heaven, not so much. Even the saints weren't perfected here on earth. They were heroic and virtuous, 
and they lived saintly-like lives, but that does not thereby mean perfect. And the same applies to St. Peter. Yes, he was given the keys to the kingdom. Yes, he was the vicar of Christ on earth, the very first pope. However, that doesn't mean he was sinless. It just means he was trusted with a unique job, a unique office that was given to him by our Lord. And so that's the basis for what I'm about to tell you. Now, here's a couple of passages that I want to reference in this discussion. Number one, St. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 25 through 29, quote, For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. Now, clearly St. Paul paints a very vivid picture for us that God on purpose has chosen the lowest things because society holds other things very high and very important and will only pay attention to that kind of a thing. That's human foolishness. And so God says, no, I'm going to use what, what, what humans think is foolish to do something that is heavenly, that is glory for God's purposes. He is going to prove a point using the lowest common denominator. Whereas in human standards, we always shoot for the highest common denominator, right? I mean, we see this all throughout salvation history. Gideon started out with a huge army. God reduced that army down to about 300 and then sent him out against an enemy of thousands. And Gideon was like, how is this going to work? How possible? How is it possible that I can take on this vast army with so few men? Well, because God does the fighting. And so God uses the low to confound the, the high. He uses the foolish to confound the wise. And so here, just based on what St. Paul is telling us, it makes great sense to see the, the men that our Lord chose to be his 12 disciples, to be the 12 priests by which he will consecrate at the Last Supper, to consecrate his own body and blood in the Blessed Sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. He used people who weren't wise, People who weren't considered of high stature and nobility and, and wise people. No, they're a little bit bumbly. They're a little bit foolish on, on sometimes. And we see that in St. Peter, which is why he's my patron saint, because I can really relate to the guy. I am, as I say, the donkey Jesus rides. Why? Because I'm a fool. I, I'm often stumbling over, tripping over my, my, my two left feet. You know, I'm often sticking my foot in my mouth. I mean, that's just kind of who I am. I'm a knuckle dragger. And St. Peter kind of was the same way. He had a lot of enthusiasm. He had a lot of passion, a lot of gusto, but sometimes he didn't always lead with his brain. You know what I mean? He, he led with his, uh, his passion and it got him into some trouble on, on occasions. And, and we see that over and over again, but that's because our Lord knew what he's doing. So here's a very basic principle. Jesus knows what he's doing. How about we trust him?
You know, who are we to question our Lord as to who he, who he chose? You know, Lord, I trust you and all, you know, to save my soul, to die on the cross and give me salvation. But, you know, I have to disagree with you on your choice for your 12 disciples, your apostles. Clearly, you just maybe you were tired. Maybe you didn't get enough sleep the night before. Maybe, you know, you, you hadn't had your morning cup of joe when you called those 12 men. Uh, maybe we should find some wiser, more articulate disciples, uh, you know, others who are just a little slicker than the ones you've chosen. Doesn't that sound silly and foolish? No, our Lord chose these men for a very specific purpose. As St. Paul says, he chose them to confound the wise. Now, our Lord says in Mark's gospel, chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, speaking of, uh, or he was actually being questioned by the disciples, these very men, as to why our Lord chose to teach in parables. And our Lord says here, Quote, when he was alone, or actually the gospel says, quote, when he was alone, those who were around him along with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, quote, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything comes in parables in order that they may indeed look, but not perceive and may indeed listen, but not understand so that they may not turn again and be forgiven, unquote. It's Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. Now, why is that so important? Because very clearly our Lord says, to them, to the masses, that's you and me, by the way. He was speaking about you and me. You and me, we're the masses, okay? To us, he speaks in parables, cryptic language. To the twelve, to the disciples, to those specific men, not you and me, to those specific men, the 12 disciples who then turned around, were the first bishops of the church and then con- and were succeeded by other bishops and passed down through apostolic succession to those men, those very specific men were given the secret of the kingdom. He doesn't give the secret to the kingdom to just anybody. He gives it to those 12 men. And kind of like in, for example, John 6, where our Lord, who multiplies the the loaves and the fishes, who feeds the masses? Jesus or the twelve? Jesus gives it to the twelve, and the twelve go out and feed the the masses. And they had so much over that they collected twelve full baskets afterwards. What's going on here? Our Lord is setting this up precisely the way he intended it. He is setting it up so that you have to go to the Twelve to get the secret. Because he teaches the Twelve, and the Twelve then teach the masses. The Lord, our Lord, consecrates the Twelve to thereby offer the bread and the wine, the true manna, the food for the journey, the food of life to the masses. He consecrates them. They turn around and feed all of us. You see what he's doing here? It's very specific. It's also very intentional. But again, let's not lose sight of the fact that our Lord chose to give the keys of the kingdom to to, uh, St. Peter in Matthew 16. It's his choice to choose these men. He knew what he was doing. Our Lord is the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Clearly, he understands what's going on here. It is not lost on Jesus that St. Peter sometimes is not always, you know, there. You know, sometimes he says things that seem kind of silly. Sometimes he does things that seems kind of silly. And, for example, in the next question, we're going to be talking about how St. Paul confronted St. Peter in Galatians, called him out. 
sort of got into his face and called him out on something that he thought he was doing wrong. And and St. Peter was very bold, or St. Paul rather, was very bold in his language, accusing St. Peter of this hypocrisy. And uh, we're going to be getting to that question next. So clearly our Lord knew exactly who St. Peter was. And so it should not be lost on us that that's uh, a part of the, the equation here. But ultimately, we are called to obedience because we trust Jesus that he didn't that he knew what he was doing when he called these 12 men and that he might have known exactly what was going to transpire being you know the second person of the trinity and all god himself then we are called to obedience like our lord in philippians 2:8 we are told we're called to obedience even obedience unto death death even unto a cross so why don't we just at the at least at the most common sense level trust jesus that he knows what he's doing and just take it on blind faith that we trust him, that he's chosen these 12 men for a very specific purpose. And he's given these specific men the, uh, the, the secret to the kingdom. And also in John chapter 21, we see how our Lord breathes on them. The Ruah, the breath of life, kind of like Adam received from God there in Genesis chapter two, Jesus, who is God, breathes upon his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And he commands them not only to go and forgive sins and to re- either retain or forgive sins as they deem fit, but also to go into the world as as Jesus was sent, so are they sent to forgive sins, to to uh, to teach and to heal and the whole nine. That's John chapter 21. So our Lord knew what he's doing. Now, I want to hone in here really quick and focus a little more on those keys because they're very critical for our understanding of St. Peter. Now, we're told in Luke chapter 1, starting around verse 23, how the angel Gabriel came down uh, to, uh, to our blessed lady and and he starts to uh, to tell her about this child that she's going to be uh, conceiving in her womb through the Holy Spirit. And that this child would, would be inheriting the throne of his father, David. Very, very critical information for us to understand Jesus' role. He is not only the only begotten of God the Father, but he's also a, a, a direct descendant and an inheritor of the throne, the earthly kingdom of David because he was in the line of David. Now, again, it was a prophecy given to David that his son Solomon would inherit the throne, and that throne would be perpetually occupied. And in fact, Solomon was the first man to be called the Son of God, because our Lord said, I will inherit Solomon as my own son. This was a prophecy, a foretype of what would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ here in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 1. And, and here our Lord inherits that throne. He's given to, in being told he's the son of the Most High and the son of David. And so he is a king, a king who has a throne, a throne and a courtroom. And a courtroom has ministers. David had a cabinet of ministers, just like here in the United States. The president has a cabinet members, the secretary of state, the secretary of defense, the secretary of health and human services, the secretary of this, the secretary of that. And then there's the the chief of staff. The president has a chief of staff. That chief of staff is exactly as it sounds, the chief of staff. And so when and we know who the chief of staff, the chief of staff is. 
We respect that person for the office that they're in. And they work directly for the president. And they, they work and for his interest and his purposes. And they're in charge and they're recognized as the, the chief among the staff members. Here, too, David has ministers. He has, in fact, a prime minister, a minister who's above all the other ministers. As a matter of fact, that prime minister, he had the keys of the kingdom. Oh, yeah, we're going to look at that. And so we need to look at that as we dive deeper into St. Matthew's uh, gospel there in chapter 16, start, uh, around uh, verse 13 through 20. Our Lord walks into the region of Caesarea Philippi. And I'll just kind of go through this really quickly here. But if you Google um, Caesarea Philippi, you're going to and look at the images, Google images. What you're going to see is a huge rock, a barefaced rock. And then there's going to be a cave on the left. And on the right, there's going to be this pagan temple built into the side of this rock. And it, this is the backdrop that our Lord enters. This was a very uh, popular area here. because Why? Because this was an area that was dedicated to the worship of Caesar. And they set up a temple, a pagan temple, and they were worshiping Caesar here at this pagan temple that's built on this rock next to this huge cave that the locals deemed as the gates of Sheol. Now, there's an even more important symbol of this rock and the gates of Sheol in Jerusalem, where the temple was built on a rock that the people felt uh, they called it the gates of Sheol there as well. But our Lord uses the Caesarea Philippi image as the backdrop, we're told in Matthew 16, as he then goes to say, who do people say that I am? And they say, some say you're a prophet, some say you're Elijah, some say you're this, some say you're that. But then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Speaking to those 12 men. And it is St. Peter who steps up. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the Most High. And then we see our Lord going sort of a tit for tat. You know, you, Simon Barjona, you know, and he renames him. You are the rock, and upon this rock, I will build my church. You know, Peter says, you are the Christ. Our Lord says, you are the rock. And so they have this tit for tat, here, exchange, kind of an exchange going on between the two. It's phenomenal. It's fascinating. Done where? Right before this huge rock. And he goes on to tell him that I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind is bound, and whatever you loose is loosened. You know, it's bound in the heavens. Why? Because this is an, an office that St. Peter is now going to take. This is an office of the prime minister in the court of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Just as David had a court and a throne and ministers, so even more does Jesus have a court, a throne and ministers. And there is a prime minister and that prime minister is St. Peter. There, building upon the rock of St. Peter, he contrasts that to this giant rock where a pagan temple was built on it next to the gates of Sheol. And our Lord says, and, I, and he makes a solemn promise that the gates of hell, the gates of Sheol, the gates of Hades shall never prevail against it. He's using a very literal visual image to talk about what St. Peter becomes. He becomes the vicar of Christ. He becomes the first pope, which merely, it only means papa, but he becomes our prime minister, the first among apostles. In fact, every instance in the gospels where uh, the, the names of the apostles, the names of the 12 disciples are being listed, St. Peter is always first. And Judas is always last. 
St. Peter is always mentioned first. He's always speaking up on behalf of the others. And he's the only one who had any courage whatsoever to step out of the boat and walk on water. So even though he's a bit clumsy at times, uh, he's also the only one with with courage, even though he failed our Lord. At the end, in John's Gospel, chapter 21, we see what happens. Our Lord uh, asking St. Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Of course. Then feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Our, our Lord is making him this pope, this chief minister. Now, we want to compare and contrast that really quickly to Isaiah chapter 22. This is what I'm talking about, about that chief minister and the kingdom of David. Now, this was not during the the actual reign of David. David, this was further along the the timeline here. But in Isaiah chapter 22, starting in verse 15, it says, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to the steward of Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here? And whom have you here, that you have hewn here a tomb for yourself? You who hew a tomb on the height and carve a habitation for yourself in the rock? Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, and you strong men. He will seize uh, firm hold on you and whirl you round and round and throw you like a ball into the wide land. There you shall die and there shall be your splendid chariots and shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office and you will be cast down from your station. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your girdle on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. Now, I won't continue to read that, but that's Isaiah chapter 22, verses 15, I think through 40 something there. It's very clear. This is the prime minister. Now, what he was doing wrong was he's becoming very prideful and arrogant, and he made himself this huge tomb in the side of this rock and was trying to decorate it so ornately. And this was like, are you out of your mind? You're like lost your mind. You're to serve the kingdom. This is not it. And so he replaced him, takes him out, takes away the keys from this man, takes away the robe from this man, takes away the authority. Because he strips him of his office, his station, and gives the office, the station, the robe, the girdle, the, the keys to Eliakim, placing the keys on the shoulder. Why? Because it's the uh, that key that lies on the shoulder. When he walks around in public eye, people know that that is the, the chief minister, the prime minister. And so when our Lord in Matthew 16 gives the keys to St. Peter, he knows Everybody knows that that is the chief minister in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I hope that's pretty clear. I also want you to kind of contrast that what's going on there, taking it away from one, giving it to another in Isaiah 22 with Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 41, where our Lord speaking to the chief priests uh, gives them the parable of the wine, the wine press, the vineyard. We can talk about that another time, but we see taking away from one, giving to another. But in that occasion, it's the priesthood, taking it from those in Jerusalem at the temple and giving it to those 12 men there in the Last Supper. Now, real quick, the second question. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, 
uh, St. Paul says, But when Cephas Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. Now, I've run out of time, so I can't really get too deep into this. But here's the deal. St. Paul was mad at St. Peter, because at first, when he was hanging out with St. Paul there in Galatia, they were eating with the Gentiles like normal. But when the Jews, the, the, the Jewish Christians came down, the party of the circumcision uh, came down, St. Peter stopped. He stopped eating with the Gentiles. He stopped eating like a Gentile and started to eat like a Jew again. And St. Paul felt this was hypocrisy and called him out on it. But here's the problem. St. Paul wrote Galatians before he wrote the book of Romans. But in the book of Romans, in chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, it says this, Welcome those who are weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything, while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. Now, I, I don't have time to finish here, but the bottom line is, it seems to me St. Paul learned something from St. Peter that he actually reacted out of passion in Galatians, but he learned something about being ecumenical, about being charitable to those circumcision-like Jews, those Jewish Christians who didn't yet understand that they could eat anything. But St. Peter knew it and St. Paul knew it, but St. Paul needed to learn charity. And so he learned that and he actually says that in Romans 14, which he wrote after Galatians 2. For more information on that, check out catholichack.com. I'll post a link to a show I did on that with much more detail. Wow. You know, a half hour is so tight. There's just not enough time to really dive deep in some of this stuff. But I will post links to shows that I've done in the past with a lot more information, a lot more detail, a lot more references at catholichack.com. Send your feedback to catholichack at gmail.com or give me a call at 713-568-6277. Well, until next time, I'm praying for you. God bless. From the Catholic Underground.